Hello, my name is David Lesner, and I'm one of the pastors at Creekwood United Methodist Church. We are located in Fairview, Texas, right east of Allen, just north of the Dallas area. The sermon you're about to hear was recorded at one of our worship services, which we'd love to invite you to check out live at 8.30 a.m. for traditional or 11 a.m. for contemporary on Sunday mornings on our Facebook page or the recorded version on YouTube. We'd love for you to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC or our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more information about what is happening and how you can grow with us in our mission to share God's love. If you feel inspired, there's also a way to give at the top of the website. Thanks for listening to this sermon, and we hope it inspires you in your journey with God. Good morning. Hope you all are doing well this cool morning. It's supposed to be cool. It's wintertime. There's the good news. Spring is 58 days away. <laughs> Scripture reading this morning comes from Luke 3, 15 through 17. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them saying, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the throng on his sandals. We will baptize you in the, with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquestionable fire. This is the word of God for all of God's people. Thanks be to God. So a week ago, a local artist by the name of Preston Panic didn't recognize the stir that his mural was going to cause in East Dallas. Preston being a Dallas Mavericks superfan thought that maybe his artwork would um, simply just be seen as a goofy mural in East Dallas celebrating a certain player on the Dallas Mavericks team, or maybe it would just be something fun to rally the neighborhood around. And if you haven't seen the mural, um, it is Luka Doncic, who if you haven't seen play basketball is incredible. He is a triple-double machine. He is the heartbeat of the Dallas Mavericks organization. It is Luca, surrounded by some of his incredible game stats that um, he's had recently, with the sign, please send help. Because if you are a Mavericks fan, you know that as incredible as Luca is, that as they get into the playoffs, Luca by himself hasn't, you know, that's not enough against some of the other super teams of the NBA. And even with Luka's incredible game stats, they sit in fifth, just, you know, eight and a half games behind the Denver Nuggets, who are in first place. And so uh, Preston had no idea the social media backlash that would happen by Luca asking for help. And he had no idea that Mark Cuban himself, the billionaire owner of the Dallas Mavericks, would personally email him asking him to, well, not necessarily asking him to take it down, but talking about how disrespectful it was to uplift one 
person on the team over all the staff members, all the three-point shooters, all the role players on the team, and that Mark Cuban didn't think this was a good idea. So Preston, being the super fan, being the respectful fan that he is, listened to Mark Cuban. He got out his black paint roller, and he rolled over the mural of Luka Doncic in uh, East Dallas and replaced it with this. The coming soon promise of a new mural. But here's what gets me. With the support of Luka Doncic. Now, I know Carolyn brought to you another sports story a couple weeks ago with Damar Hamlin and his incredible story. And, and we're, it, it, this is another sports story, but I, I bring it to you because there are few people in our society besides athletes and maybe politicians and I would maybe argue musicians that people give so much attention or affirmation that people base their entire lives off. Let's just say that. And if you think I'm wrong about that, I would invite you to count the hours that you and your friends have spent over the last four years debating whether Dak Prescott is the answer at quarterback or not. And if you haven't personally done that, go on social media and see what your friends have been talking about for the last four years. I know more than one person, and maybe this is the wrong demographic, but I know more than one person who had more than strong feelings that they were not able to get in and see Taylor Swift in the whole Ticketmaster concert ticket debacle that happened. And I would just ask you to evaluate the emotional space that you give to your favorite cable news network on a daily basis. How much... Do these people take up the space that our lives are built around? How much, you know, we were just debating that Super Bowl Sunday is rolling around and we were trying to figure out how much worship attendance would drop if the Cowboys made it. The game starts at like four or five. Worship is done at noon. It doesn't seem to matter. <laughs> What's amazing to me about this mural is someone like Luca, who Dallas Mavericks fans live and die off of, who is literally carrying the team on his back with his stellar play and superior talent, has the humility to join with Mark Cuban and say, no, this mural ought not to be about me. And I suspect that whatever mural he's working with him on will celebrate his teammates and his team to have the humility. I don't know if we recognize how hard it is for somebody who is the center point of an organization or a group to have the humility to say, it's not about me. Which is what makes John the Baptist even more impressive to me. John the Baptist comes out from the wilderness and starts preaching this uh, baptism of repentance and people are flocking. And, you know, there is something to be said when, you know, I've been to the Sea of Galilee now, and the cities are not that far apart. But when you are coming out from the wilderness, if you're going to come from Jordan, uh, Jericho, or you're going to come from Jerusalem, or you're going to come from any of those other cities, you have to go over mountains. You have to make an effort to go and see John and what John is doing. It is kind of out in the barren wilderness. And so people are flocking to this message that is different from what the Pharisees and Sadducees are preaching, and they're coming to see John. And I think we have to understand that when they're whispering to the side, is this the Messiah? 
they're doing so with great expectation because the language of the Messiah has been around since the writings of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, which means it's been around since before the Israelites went into exile in Babylon. It's been around because the prophets were saying, look, this is the terrible thing that's going to happen because of the terrible things you are doing, but because God is faithful, there's going to be a Messiah. And in the early parts, it corresponded with the Exodus. And so it was going to be a freedom from oppression, a freedom from a foreign kingdom. And we have to recognize that Israel hadn't been an independent nation since 722 B.C., This is 800 years of occupied Israel desperately hoping for that one person that Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah promise that's going to free them. And which books like Daniel expound upon and say it's not just freedom from Babylon or Assyria or Rome, but books like Daniel expound upon and say the Messiah is going to come and give final victory where God is going to be present as Revelation would say that we will walk amongst this town with God and we will not have darkness anymore because God's light will be so present with us. And so you can imagine the expectation. And with great expectation comes great exuberation. And they flock to John. And John is receiving all of these comments of, are you the Messiah? Are you the one to lead us? And John very well could have gone off mission, gone off brand a little bit, and just said, yeah, of course I am. Because do you know how well the Messiah would have been treated? At least we assume You know how well Luca gets treated? You know how well your favorite politician gets treated? You know how well Taylor Swift gets treated? John very much could have just ridden this wave of momentum. He could have just said, you know what? Yep, I am the one you have been looking for. And I tell you what, give me my war horse. Give me my chariot. Give me my gold. I'm going to do just like Saul and just like David and just like Solomon. And we see where that got us. But what John does is so much, is incredible. With all of this attention, with all of these accolades, John says, no, there's one who I'm meant to point to. There's one who comes after me who I am unworthy to tie the thong of his sandals. John lives out the baptismal vow that we have of do you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior, put your whole trust in his grace, and promise to serve him as your Lord in union with the church which Christ has opened to people of all ages, nations, and races. John recognizes that there is somebody beyond us. And Scripture points to this. Scripture points to us when we look at um, the first chapter of John in the, in the prologue to the letter, the Gospel of John, it echoes Genesis 1. All things came into being through Jesus, and without him, not one thing came into being. And we look at if the entire creation is made through Jesus, and we recognize that we are created beings, then logically that means that there is something higher than us, something with more authority, something that sets the standard for us. And so just even logically from what we believe about Scripture, it is this acceptance that we are not the penultimate authority here on earth or in life. That there is something that created us, and because we are created by some other entity, we are not the primary mover here. 
And Romans goes on to say that since all have fallen short, it's talking about that there is no distinction between Hebrew or Gentile, and I would say we could expand that to multiple other different distinctions that we put together, we place on each other as humans. But the borderline is, as people who are created and are not the penultimate authority on earth, we are people that make mistakes. And I would dare say that all of us are very cognizant that we make mistakes. And so if we are created beings who recognize we make mistakes, but who see that there is some journey toward perfection, even even secular standards of holiness or goodness are are based really upon religious standards of holiness or goodness, and we recognize there is some standard of goodness, but we make mistakes, so we can't be that standard of goodness. So it has to be that which created us and who set the world in order, who sets that standard of goodness. It means that we have to confess that there is something beyond ourselves. That the moment we start taking the accolades— And it's good to love yourself, and it's good to love each other. But the moment we start taking the accolades and saying, yep, follow me. I've got all the answers. I've got all the solutions. I'm the only one who can make this happen. And you know what? You're wrong because you don't agree with me. That is the moment when we stop confessing that Jesus Christ is our Lord. That's the moment in which we go into that place where we go along with the crowd's accolades, and we become the center of all things, and we forget that there is something higher than we are. And that we, in our faith, must confess that we are not the final authority. That there is something higher, something beyond us. Someone in which we are unworthy to tie the thong of his sandals because he is perfect and has lived a perfect life and remains perfect. But here's the thing about the perfect love of Jesus is even though we are unwilling or unworthy to tie the thong of his sandals, it doesn't mean that Jesus won't wash our feet. This is the good news about Jesus. And John lifts Jesus up as the judge. It even you know, has this part about his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor. And when I, when I read this, I, I don't necessarily think about perfect grace and love. Because a winnowing fork is that thing that tosses the hay up and takes the hay that's been broken and is not going to be good and throws it in the fire. And when we think about judgment— When we think about authority, most often we're not thinking about a Messiah who will kneel down in a loincloth to wash his disciples' feet. Most often when we're thinking about judgment, we are thinking about putting ourselves in a higher place. And whoever's in the higher place is meant to condemn those in the lower place or is meant to feed off of those in the lower place. That's how our human world works. When we claim the accolades and we claim the authority— is we place ourselves in higher positions to judge the lower positions. John tells us that Jesus is the judge because Jesus in whom all things are made. Jesus is a higher power. Jesus gives us life. And so therefore, we must confess that Jesus has authority over our lives. We must confess our trust in Jesus as the authority of our lives. But it says we must trust the grace of Jesus Christ. In a grace-based way of judgment, we see something entirely different that John points to Jesus and Jesus points to. I want to read an entire portion of Scripture here. And this is going to be long. 
But when we think about putting our full trust in the grace of God, acknowledging that we are not the final authority, acknowledging that we are less than God, and acknowledging that we make mistakes, I want you to see the judgment, if you will, of Jesus. This is from Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. Some of you are going to recognize this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. If you're not familiar with right-hand, left-hand terminology, no offense to the left-handers, but you want to be a sheep in this story. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. And then he will say to those at his left hand, remember this is the side you don't want to be on, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or, or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Putting our full trust in the grace of Jesus Christ is accepting the grace given to us as people who are under a higher power who make mistakes, recognizing that it is the grace of a higher power that says, I will wash your feet still and I will make you clean. But it is also putting our trust in the grace, the way, the truth, and the life of that higher power to be willing to be judged this way. It is putting ourselves under the authority of Jesus who shows us that the way that we will be separated is how we have loved God and love our neighbor. It is the way that leads to the way of all the things of God walking on the earth in light, showing us the good news. And this is, this is the judge that we're under. One who doesn't look down from on high and say, you are the scum of the earth, you make mistakes, let's get rid of you. But one who models the example of the sheep, gets down on his knees, washes the feet. I find it incredibly powerful. I just made this list of moments of judgment that Jesus makes. And this is, this is the way that we are called to trust in if we confess Jesus as our Savior and we put our full trust in his grace. This is the kind of people that we are meant to be. I find that so powerful. Zacchaeus, labeled a flat-out cheat, fraud, and wicked person, 
What does Jesus do? Invites him to dinner. There's a prostitute who rushes into a Pharisee's house longing for acceptance. What do the Pharisees do? They condemn her. What does Jesus do? Welcomes the anointing on his feet with expensive perfume. Or the woman caught in adultery. Or the woman at the well. Or the blind beggar. The lame man at Bethsaida. The thief on the cross next to him. And here's the kicker that I really had an impact when I thought about when I was walking over in Israel. Is Jesus on the cross not only forgiving the man who confesses him as the way to paradise standing next to, nailed next to him on the cross, but Jesus looks out at the crowd of people who have condemned him, who have not trusted in his grace, who have not trusted in his power, who have not recognized that he is a higher power and that they are making mistakes. Jesus looks out on that crowd and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the Messiah that we're asking us all to trust in. And by trusting in the grace of Jesus, of confessing Jesus as our Savior because he is a higher power and we make mistakes and Jesus cures us of those mistakes or frees us from those mistakes to go on and live, that is the second part of that vow is because we trust in all of this, because we trust that this is the way we ought to behave as people who claim Jesus as our Messiah. It opens the church up to people of all ages, nations, and races. And I would dare add on to that mistakes, failures, and past stories. Zacchaeus, the prostitute, the woman at the well, the blind beggar, all of these people that would have been written off by so many other people, we are called because we trust in the grace of God, because we trust that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then we are called, in fact mandated, that the church be open to people of all ages, nations, and races, mistakes, past stories, everything. And one of the things that I am most proud of about all of us here at Creekwood. And granted, we can have our mistakes and our flaws. We all know that. But I got permission to share this story without a name and without a whole lot of detail, so forgive me for that. But I remember a few years ago, I was only reminded of it recently, but I remember a few years ago, there was a gentleman who came and was new here with us. And um, so I did my thing, and I tried to rush through the crowd to meet somebody who was new. And, and I shook his hand, and we, you know, wanted to strike up a conversation. And before he even told me his name, he says, I just want you to know, this is the last chance I'm giving church. So I said, no pressure. <laughs> um, you know, he told me his name, I told him mine, but our initial conversation was, this is the last shot that I'm giving church. Because in his growing up church experience, all he had experienced was somebody on stage telling their congregation that they were right and the world was evil and that they needed to buckle down and reject everything and everybody that wasn't a part of their congregation. And when he had kids, one of their kids was rejected by the church that they had been a part of and told that they were no good and that they were going to hell. And then they tried a different church and all they found was there was a little bit of a more of a grace toward the child, but there was still this kind of condemnation where there was infighting amongst each other for jostling for who had power and position within the church and who got to make the decisions. And everything he had experienced about the church was this dividing of judgment, but it wasn't a dividing of judgment based upon grace or love. There was no confession that Jesus is a higher power because we make mistakes. We have to trust in the grace of God. And because of the grace of God, we are open to all people and loving of all people, whether we initially get along or not. 
And he was looking for this community that John points to, not of people who claim that they are the most important person, that they are the center of authority, but people who are pointing to the one who is. People who are humble, people who are grateful, people who are faithful, and point to a Savior who is well beyond us and promises a kingdom well beyond anything we can do by ourselves. And I only remembered this story because he came a couple months ago and, uh, and just said, I just want you to know Creekwood passed the test. I said, what test? And he goes, well, if you'll remember, I told you this was the last shot I was giving church. And I said, oh, yeah, I remember how terrible I felt that day. And he said, y'all passed the test. And I am eternally grateful for a church that can look past mistakes, that can look past backgrounds, that can look past even some disagreements about whether we think the Cowboys are going to win or whether we don't think the Cowboys are going to win or look past political disagreements to point to the one who is our master, to point to the one who does not take authority and lord it over others, but takes authority and washes the feet of those who need grace and those who need love. And in the environment of the society that I read right now, I think that it is imminently vital that we unapologetically trust in the lordship of Jesus Christ over our lives and we unapologetically confess Jesus Christ as our Savior. And because we unapologetically do that, we are a church that is open to people of all ages and nations and races and backgrounds and mistakes. So that a world thirsty for the world of Jesus Christ might find a glimmer of that whenever they meet you. And whenever they meet me. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we bow our heads because we know that we are humble before you. We know that you are greater and your ways are higher than our ways. Your love is deeper than our love. And we confess that we are not God and not you. And so, Lord, help us to accept the responsibility that we have to point past ourselves to your loving grace and channel that love and grace, that power and authority to take it out into the world and wash the feet of those who need to feel welcomed and loved so that they too might meet your loving arms and your loving face. They too might know that even if they are unworthy to tie the thong of your sandals, that you will still wash their feet because you have found them worthy to be loved. And so God, in whoever we meet today and the next day, may we confess that you are our Lord. And so may we treat our neighbor as such. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand and sing? Thanks for listening. We would love if you could leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening today and let us know how we are doing.
Be sure to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC and our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more ways to get involved at Creekwood United Methodist Church in person, online, or both. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.